It's an absolute privilege to be here tonight to talk to you on this topic. Now, my wife loves watching medical drama. I don't know if you remember any of these. Um, ER, Grey's Anatomy, Private Practice, um, Chicago Hope. She, she loves nothing more than to get a cup of tea, sit down and just have a great watch. I can't stand them. I can't stand them because every single time someone falls unconscious and they resuscitate them, they, get, they bring them back. Now that, that sounds perhaps cruel, uh, that sounds a bit odd to say, but the reason why I can't stand that is it's just not realistic. It's just not accurate. And it's not what happens in the real world. It makes the, the, um, the doctors look like gods. Does anybody know what the percentage is, the realistic percentage, of people who are resuscitated who actually do get resuscitated successfully? Anybody? Just hazard a guess. 10%? Okay. 5%? I, um, I uh, heard a, a very experienced GP who's been working uh, in the uh, emergency department for 30 to 40 years. I heard him speak uh, quite recently and he said, it just doesn't work, is what he said. Having said that, on uh, Saturday I met a patient who... Uh, was uh, at hospital, went into cardiac arrest, very sick fellow with um, a, a chronic renal failure. So his kidneys are packed up. And uh, they jumped on him right away, got resuscitation going, and about 20 to 25 minutes later, they got his heart going. He went into a, uh, they put him in an induced coma, and after about a day or two, he actually came out without any brain damage, which is absolutely extraordinary. Usually about about 15 minutes we call it. We just say, any pulse? No. Any sign of life? No. But he, he survived, and that's extraordinary. doesn't happen very often. Okay, so uh, does anybody know how long it takes brain death to occur? Um, about three minutes. So the time it takes for you to um, get your two-minute noodles going and open your sachet and stir it, that's it. That's how long it takes for your brain to die, become ischemic um, and have irreversible damage. And so um, your answer was right. It is 5% of resuscitation. It's less than 5% actually. And it's only about three minutes. So during my research for this talk, I came across this extraordinary case uh, of resuscitation, which is the longest successful resuscitation in the UK and the longest in the world that I could find without brain damage. It's an example of the absolute limit that you can push the body. I got this information from the Daily Mail from London and I noticed on the same day there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald with the same story, just without as much detail, and I've got no reason to doubt either account. On Boxing Day, 
2003, in Birmingham in the UK. Two-year-old Joe Toey was playing in his backyard when he slipped and he fell into the three-foot-deep pond. Twenty minutes later, Mum enters the backyard looking for him, only to find him face down and motionless in the water. Within moments, she drags him out of the water and finds no heartbeat and no signs of breathing. His father, who comes outside to see what all the commotion is about, calls an ambulance and begins mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, or CPR. Three minutes later, the ambulance turns up, and six minutes after that, little Joe is met by a team of eight doctors, nurses, and an anaesthetist at the Accident Emergency Department of Birmingham. His parents are distraught. They describe him to the staff as gone, dead. Resuscitation is temporarily ceased to check the signs of life. Breathing, there's no spontaneous breathing. Heart monitors show no signs of heart activity. Pupils, they're dilated and not responding to light. Joe's clinically dead. Despite this, due to their medical knowledge, the doctors are unwilling to declare this two-year-old dead until normal body temperature is restored. Nobody's dead until they're warm and dead. So, six minutes after arriving in hospital, a probe shows his temperature to be a staggering 10 degrees below normal. That's 26 degrees when it really should be about 37. He's in in an extreme state of hypothermia. This gave the medical team a ray of hope. Over the next few hours, that's right, hours, they continued resuscitation, slowly warming his body, giving him intravenous adrenaline to stimulate his heart and medication to correct his body's high acid levels. Five hours and ten minutes after he fell into the backyard pond, his heart spontaneously started beating again. One hour later, his eyes began to respond to light. Two weeks later, he wakes up, looks at his mother's face and smiles. And three weeks after that, he was discharged from hospital with no brain damage. So what saved Joe? It was his sudden and severe hypothermia. At 26 degrees or less, his brain and other organs required much less oxygen than usual to stay alive. His organs were in a state of hibernation which was aided by the CPR that started 20 minutes after he fell into that pond. He was a very, very lucky boy. Cases like this are rare. If you look up the word resuscitation in Dolan's Medical Dictionary, you'll read, the restoration of life or consciousness of one apparently dead. And that's the key, apparently dead. This describes Joe well. His body tissues were ischemic, that is, starved of oxygen, but not infarcted, which is death of the tissues with no return. But what about resurrection? How is this different from little Joe's resuscitation? To answer this question, we'll be looking at the case of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived about 2,000 years ago. According to eyewitness accounts, he was tortured, executed by Roman soldiers, and a couple of days later, came back to life. 
first question we have to answer is, did Jesus die? Or could he have been resuscitated? We learn from biblical and non-biblical sources that after being sentenced to die, Jesus was flogged. The Romans reserved flogging for non-citizens. Typically, one was the one to be punished was stripped naked and secured, either bent over or stretched out. Two to six torturous, alternated blows on the bare body from the shoulder down to the feet. They used a device which is designed to tear the flesh and tear the skin apart. They were to beat the person almost to the point of death, but not beyond. Although sometimes they could. We know that Jesus was severely flogged because in the accounts they mocked him and struck him in the face again and again. So badly was he flogged that he had to force another man, Simon from Cyrene, to carry the beams of wood that were used for his cross. Jesus was then crucified. Crucifixion was a form of execution where victims were attached to a crossbeam of wood, often by nails that we know are about five inches long, driven through the wrists and the feet, and left out to die. Only slaves and the lowest type of humans were crucified. Present at his crucifixion were Roman soldiers. Amongst them was a centurion, who was a commander, what they are is a commander of around 100 men, not necessarily 100. They're known for brave feats in battle and their harsh discipline. Now it was the Sabbath, which is the Jewish holy day, that uh, goes from Friday evening to the Saturday evening. And the Jews didn't want bodies to be left out on the crosses. So they broke the legs of the prisoners. The soldiers broke the legs of the prisoners on the crosses to kill them a bit quicker. But when they came to Jesus, they noticed he was already dead. Instead of breaking his legs, his side was pierced with a spear to make sure he was dead. And there was a sudden flow of bloodstained fluid. Jesus already would have had a large part of his skin destroyed by the flogging. If he was dead, as the soldiers declared him to be, he was no longer moving. If no longer moving, he's no longer breathing. From the point he stops breathing, Jesus has three minutes before the brain dies with no hope of coming back. How long do you think it would take for the Roman soldiers to take Jesus down from the cross. Maybe five minutes? Maybe ten minutes? No oxygen equals brain damage and catastrophic neurological failure. A sudden gush of bloodstained fluid would indicate a significant loss of blood volume with nothing to stem the flow to the outside world. All his vital organs would have been past the point of no return with his death sometime before, and now they eviscerate a corpse. Unlike Joe Toey, Jesus was not surrounded by a team of medical staff and parents who were trying to work to save his life. He was surrounded by multiple executions with only one goal in mind, killing him and making sure he was dead. Sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? As I was preparing this talk, I wanted to know if there were any recorded cases of someone being crucified and surviving. And lo and behold, I discovered there was. As you can see, Professor Paul Mayer 
tells us about this case. He's an ancient historian from Western Michigan University who writes, True, there is a recorded instance of a victim being taken down from a cross and surviving. The Jewish historian Josephus, who had gone over to the Roman side in the rebellion of AD 66, discovered three of his friends being crucified. That's not a very good thing, isn't it? Three of your mates being crucified. So immediately what does he do? He asks the Roman general Titus to reprieve them, and they were immediately removed from the crosses. Still two of the three died anyway, even though they apparently been crucified only for a short time. In Jesus' case, however, there were the additional complications of the scourging, that means the, the whipping with the, uh, the, the flesh-tearing whips, and exhaustion, to say nothing of the great spear thrust that pierced his ribcage and probably ruptured his pericardium. Well, that's conjecture. Uh, Romans were grimly efficient about crucifixions. Victims did not escape with their lives. So Jesus was flogged, crucified, found to be dead, had the spear thrust, and it is at this point that Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman ruler at that time, gets interested in the news that Jesus is dead. So he asks his centurion to go and check that Jesus is dead. What do you think a centurion would do to check that a body was dead? I don't know about you, but if I was a centurion... I'd get my gladius, which is a Roman sword, and I would poke him. And I would take it out to make sure that he was dead. But it doesn't say. The reports don't say. They just say that he, uh, he declared him dead. Now, I've declared a lot of people dead in my time. It's actually not that hard. Firstly, they're not breathing. Secondly, they don't have pulse. Thirdly, there are no sound. No, there are sounds. There's no sounds of the breathing. There's no sounds of the pulse. There's no reaction to the eyes, and people are cold. They're generally very, very cold. By the time I get there, they've usually been dead for hours—12 hours, maybe 24 hours. The evidence that Jesus died and was buried in a tomb. That's what the evidence is. It's my opinion that Jesus died an irreversible death. I don't think there's any way in the world that Jesus could have been resuscitated going all the way back to when he was taken down from the cross. This is based on the historical evidence from biblical and non-biblical sources which correlates with medical knowledge of what we would expect to have happened. Joseph of Arimathea, once in possession of Jesus' body, took it to a new tomb that was freshly cut and had a rolling stone to block the entrance. Modern scholars note that only the very wealthy at the time of Jesus' death had round stones to close their tombs. This matches Matthew's recording of Joseph being rich and his comment that a very large stone was rolled in front of the tomb. Mark records the stone as an extremely large stone. This all points to something that doesn't get moved very easily. Jewish officials went to Pilate to make sure no one tampered with the body. Jesus was very popular, this all makes sense. Both the Jews and the Romans clearly had a motive to limit whatever influence in whatever way they could. So, take a guard, Pilate answered, and go make the tomb secure 
as you know how. We know that there were multiple men because we read later some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that happened. Professor Meyer states ancient guards were typically four squads of four men, thus 16 men were probably guarding the tomb of Jesus. A seal was placed in the tomb, which was a cord across the stone, which was fastened at either end of the ceiling clay, embossed with Pilate's signet. To break, the Roman seal was against the law and severely punished. Two days later, something unexpected happened. On the Sunday morning, some women went to put spices on Jesus' body. As they were unable to perform this on the Sabbath by law. When they arrived, they found the very large stone rolled away. We are suddenly faced with seven issues that are not easy to explain. Firstly, the fact that the seal was broken. Someone dared to challenge the wrath of Roman law by breaking the seal. So who did it? The second issue was the fact that women were the first witnesses to Jesus. This might seem a bit odd to us, but if you wanted to tell a convincing story in the ancient world, you would not choose the first witnesses to be women because their testimony was not admissible in court. If someone made this up, someone confabulated this story, then why would they have made women the first witnesses to this event? The third was that the guard, who were probably Roman, were nowhere to be seen. It's quite clear that Roman law, that the 16 or so men who left their posts were facing the penalty of death. So their reason for fleeing was an extremely compelling one. So what was it? The fourth issue was the stone was moved in the first place. So it's been estimated that a round rock that could roll over a three and a half to four foot high entrance, it's not very high, would weigh approximately 1,500 to 2,000 kilos. Clearly, this would not be easily moved. So who moved it? The fifth is the empty tomb. Not only did the disciples agree it was empty, but the official Jewish explanation of the situation was that the disciples had stolen the body. If Jesus' body was still in the tomb with a very large stone guarded by a party of 16 or so disciplined soldiers, they would never have had to make this embarrassing admission in the first place. So where was the body? The sixth issue is that the eyewitness reports of Jesus being alive. The Apostle Paul reminds his readers in his letter to those in Corinth that Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. Most of whom are still living, he says. In effect, he's saying, if you don't believe me, go and ask one of them. If they were available to testify in a court hearing on the matter, the weight of their evidence would be completely overwhelming. The seventh issue was a complete turnaround in conviction of the disciples. At the time of Jesus' rest and trial, they either fled or they kept their distance. But after the death and burial of Jesus, 
that went all over the known world telling people of the message that Jesus came back from the dead. All of the apostles were executed for spreading the news about Jesus, sometimes by crucifixion, all except one John who died of old age. They were certainly convinced of their message, but what was it that convinced them beyond any doubt? The claim by the early Christians is that on the third day, over 38 hours after Jesus died, he was seen alive. This is not explained by resuscitation. If these accounts are true, then how do we make sense of this? Once body tissues have gone past the point of no return, it doesn't matter how much resuscitation or CPR or cardiac massage or fluid resuscitation that you do. We do not have the capacity to make any difference to a person's dead status. If these accounts are true, then what happened cannot be explained by medical science. This is the difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Man is not able to reverse the irreversible. I have, re- I have attended resuscitations, and they are depressing events. You tend to jump on somebody's chest. You tend to break ribs, usually elderly people, and they die anyway. You might not be aware of this, but this is not the first time that someone's talked to a bunch of uni students about the resurrection. In fact, it goes way, way back. According to Luke's account, 2,000 years ago, a man called Paul went to talk to some uni students in Athens about the resurrection. Some of them thought he was an idiot. But some wanted to know more. What do you think? Is this just so crazy that it just might be true? Or is it some bizarre, cruel, incredibly well-orchestrated hoax? Paul writes, If but for this life we have faith in Christ, we, that is us Christians, are to be pitied above all men. We would be the most duped bunch of fools that has ever lived. But if Jesus was indeed resurrected, and not resuscitated, then our hope is so firm, so unshakable, so immovable, that not even death can put a dent in it. This talk does not provide proof of Jesus' resurrection, but just evidence that it might not be so unreasonable after all. Although it might sound compelling, this is not at the heart of why I became a Christian. At the heart of why I became a Christian is the issue of death and the issue of suffering. I understand death here, but I didn't understand it here. There's just something wrong about it. In a very deep place, I would call out to the God that may or may not be there, And I would say, where are you, God? Are you afraid? Why don't you come down here? Why don't you experience what it's like to have this kind of pain, this kind of suffering that we have in this world? When I discovered 
The Christian story was about Jesus, the God-man, becoming familiar with life on earth, of hunger, of thirst, of pain. Then that he suffered a torturous, humiliating death that he didn't deserve, I was transfixed. To this day, I can't stop looking at the story. The resurrection only adds to my fascination. A resuscitated Jesus is interesting, but a resurrected one is completely gripping. Let me encourage you to investigate the historical Jesus for yourself. Look at what he said. Read the eyewitness accounts for yourself and come up with your own conclusion. I once had it explained to me like this. If the weight of evidence that we have for Jesus being resurrected was actually about something a lot more mundane, like Jesus wore a red toga, then everyone would believe he wore a red toga. It's just that being resurrected is such a bizarre event. In my opinion, if he was resuscitated, then an explanation that doesn't fit the historical evidence or our knowledge of medical science has yet to be found. But if he was resurrected, then he might be what millions of people believe all over the world, the exact representation of the divine, the son of the living God. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah.